Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning to you this Friday morning, the 21st of April. There's been a surge in support in uh, the Netherlands uh, for a farmer citizen political party. On foot of uh, the Senate elections, which saw the BBB win 15 of the 75 seats or 20% of uh, the available seats, the political editor of the Irish Farmers Journal, Pat O'Toole, wrote about the parallels between the dynamic in Irish politics and the BBB's emergence. The imposition of environmental restrictions on farming, he said, uh, along with the sense among some in rural areas uh, that their voice is not being heard within government and a broader conservative resistance to what could loosely be called the progressive agenda are all at play. Could they attract a slew of candidates from across rural Ireland to form a national platform, he asked, and could such a broad alliance condense into a political party? And as you know, uh, a month on from Pat O'Toole asking these questions in the journal and if there is room for an Irish BBB independent TD Michael Fitzmaurice publicly declared those very same questions this week. Let's speak to Pat O'Toole, the political editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. Good morning to you Pat and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Did you have a crystal ball uh, a month ago or is this just a sign of uh, the influence uh, that the Farmers Journal has uh, on TDs and people in uh, rural Ireland? <laughs> Uh, n- neither. If I had a crystal ball, I'd have backed the winner in the national, Michael. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't. Even though it was a Wexford bred horse, so I think um, there was an inevitability about this uh, in, in many ways because uh, we are reporting all over the country every week on rural issues, and the sense of disconnect that is expressed from the floor at meeting after meeting, and frequently. Uh, towards the top table but depending on the organisation often by the top table as well if it's one of the farm organisations or if it's a a group of business people or if it's a a project team around something like um, you know the projects which are are being held up in rural Ireland where there's people involved in forestry uh, anaerobic digestion and renewable energy uh, um, there's so many projects that are at the talking stage, but there's not much action. And I suppose the, the Climate Action Plan crystallised that because uh, while there's been a lot of criticism of the level of ambition for uh, agriculture with uh, reduction targets, 
which is lower than other sectors at 30%. The reality is that farming is uh, already taking steps to, and, and an awful lot of steps, to uh, reduce uh, the, the footprint of farming in terms of carbon. Uh, there is an issue with dairy expansion and how it has expanded the carbon output from farming, but there's a huge amount of work. And even this week, um, Stephen Robb uh, has a report on renewables in our paper and Aidan Brennan is talking about, no, it's not Aidan, one of our reporters mm-hmm. anyway, Don Atwood, is, is reporting on how uh, the cutting edge, is Barry Murphy actually, the cutting edge of Irish young scientists are, are now believe that they can reduce the methane from the dairy herd by 25% through uh, uh, new technologies. So I, I um, the frustration that we feel every week as we go around the country to meetings is manifest now. And I think that the success of the BBB has really catapulted this into the national conversation. Perhaps the first step towards it was uh, the formation of uh, this Farmers Alliance. Apparently 300 farmers and others uh, went to a meeting in Athlone last weekend uh, to talk about the prospect of some political organisation to represent rural Ireland. Uh, I read that Verona Murphy was one of the people who attended that meeting, along with Michael Fitzmaurice, uh, who told us on the programme this week he was very impressed by what people had to say. But the Irish Daily Mail is reporting today that Verona Murphy, as well as the Healy Rays, have ruled themselves out of joining a political party. Yes, um, we talked to Verona, Michael, uh, Matty McGrath and others a couple of weeks ago, in the paper, well, about a month ago actually, in, in, in the paper. And Verona, um, she, she, she certainly can see, uh, and she's local TD here in County Wexford, she certainly can see uh, the range of issues and how there are um, they are coalescing um, around a, you know a sense that rural Ireland needs an independent voice. But having said that, she is one of nineteen uh, identifiable rural independent TDs in the Dáil at the moment. Um, on top of you know rural TDs, uh, very visibly rural TDs in Fine Gael, Fine Gael and Sinn Fein. Mm. Um, so there's. Uh, there's no doubt that there's a significant rural representation already in the Dáil and the challenge for any political movement like how, if the Healy Rays don't join the, um, how do you uh, set up an opposition to the Healy Rays in Cork or Richard O'Donoghue in Limerick or Verona Murphy in Wexford uh, Padder Tobin of AN2 who's spoken out on many of these issues a very small party in Mead so uh, you know all over Ireland there are um, there are independent TDs who broadly agree on, on a lot of these issues. And that's why I asked the question, um, is it more likely that in Ireland we will see the emergence of a new, completely ground-up force that, like the Farmers' Alliance is suggesting it mm. will become, such as which would be a parallel with the BBB, or is it more likely that what we will see is an informal alliance of the independent TDs who currently are in three separate informal alliances, but could form a significant part of government or indeed opposition in the next stall and their mm. numbers could a- Agreeing a manifesto could be very difficult though uh, yes. I take it uh, as well uh, because uh, whilst there's a lot of common ground they are a pretty diverse group uh, uh, on the other hand uh, and even where there is common ground uh, there are different viewpoints I mean if you look at the Healy Rays for example uh, I think few would argue that they're climate deniers and I don't think you'd say that of all the independents 
Absolutely. Um, there is a spectrum there, but you could argue the same about Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael or Sinn Féin across their parliamentary parties. There's a huge variance of, of views on a lot of issues. Um, so that, uh, I suppose the question is, can they agree on half a dozen significant platform of policies um, that they could uh, they, they could campaign on campaign on in, in, in a general election and commit to delivering on in the subsequent doll um, the egos as well as policy differences there are egos uh, as well as, as are always in politics and it's becoming harder and harder to maintain a unified front in politics you see the Greens and the difficulties they've had maintaining the grip on a relatively small party and um, we've seen a number of TDs fall out of like Carl Nolan out of Sinn Féin, Mark McSharry out of Fianna Fáil. Um, there have been casualties uh, in, in the major political parties. And indeed, most of the independent TDs in the Dáil were at one time or another in one of the main political parties. Michael Fitzmaurice is an exception to that rule, uh, he, but he was closely aligned to Luke Ming Flanagan and took Luke's seat when he went to the European Parliament. So they, um, I suppose... Ireland is unique in our political structure, in the proportional representational system, which allows independents and small parties mm. to gain representation to the doll. And it will be interesting to see how the talks proceed in the next few weeks, but I wouldn't be holding my breath just yet. And while the Farmers' Alliance is um, a group of people who um, agree that something needs to be done, there was a huge variety of issues raised, and I'm not sure that there will be a common platform there just yet. Um, and we have seen a proliferation of farm organisations, the independent farmers, in, there's two iterations of that, the Irish Beef and Lamb Association, the Grain Growers, the Beef Plan, uh, and the Irish Hill and Natura farmers have all emerged in the last 10 years. So this proliferation seems to be uh, just part of modern life. Okay, what's your sense of the outcome of an election for any of the independents that currently have seats? Uh, do you think uh, that they'd fare better as independents? Because there's obviously a, a lot of appeal that uh, they're not under a political party whip and have to follow uh, what the party diktat is uh, and they can represent their constituency in an independent sense and say look you know I'm not a politician all that sort of stuff or to join this uh, alliance uh, before an election uh, and campaign as a member of a political party or to I suppose the third option uh, to go as an independent and try to form an alliance of this sort afterwards I think um, looking at the current crop of independent TDs most of them um, would stand on their track record of work and work on the ground at local level and don't have the baggage of being associated with any of the policies uh, of government that are, are, are disappointing people. Um, and, and I suppose the two issues that are particularly uh, held up as failures, and that would be health and housing, housing in particular. And I think that um, if you talk about, say, Michael Collins in West Cork, People in South Dublin might wonder what the appeal of Michael Collins is, and he's characterised sometimes as a Gambian politician, but he has personally loaded, and I mean personally loaded, over a thousand people on buses to have cataract operations in Northern Ireland 
every single one of those people on every single one of those buses probably translates into two to three votes. And that's how you build, uh, you know, a, a, a quota that uh, will stand and withstand the pressures uh, that come with uh, the ups and downs of the electoral cycle. And uh, that is repeated across the country when you, you sit, talk to people on the ground about their local independent TD. They have ferocious work rates and real attention to detail of the local needs. Um, and I would think that the majority of them are looking good to be re-elected at this point in time, whether they're in a coalition, a formal political party, or a part as independent. Mm. And if they were to run as members of a coalition, an anti-grain coalition, uh, it has to be said, uh, because I, I think uh, that's the driving force behind the thinking. If there is any mind to, to establish a political party that it would oppose the Green Party policies. Uh, do you think uh, that that party would fare better, though, uh, that it could maybe return more seats for uh, the party overall than the independents would running individually? I think there's a risk in running as an anti-Green party. It is popular at the moment, but there's two things. First of all, Ireland is a very young electorate, and... Um, there's an awful lot of people who will be voting for the first time and green issues will be very high on their agenda. Um, notwithstanding, I mean, there will be di- differences depending on where you sit in society, whether you're, you're living in Dublin uh, or whether you're, you're down the country uh, where farming is uh, a, a very important part of the local economy. But I think the other factor is that, um, you know, the evidence of the negative uh, around climate change uh, is mounting. I'm sitting on a corn store at the moment, uh, Michael, as we talk, and we're miles behind on our work. We've had, like after an unseasonably dry February, we've had uh, six wet weeks and mm. we're way behind and it's the same all over Absolutely. the country. Absolutely. The driest uh, February on record, the wettest March on record. Yeah. Mm. And, and what we're having is these cycles of long periods of sustained weather, whether it's you know, hot summers, uh, wet winters, um, and that was what was predicted. Uh, climate change for Ireland is not about vineyards in Cork. Um, uh, it, it, it's about it uh, being a little bit uh, warmer, but uh, uh, quite a bit wetter in the winter, and then very dry summers at times. Uh, more prolonged periods of a certain type of weather and then extreme weather events like the mini tornado we had in Wexford that was extremely frightening for the corridor it ran down and and swept buildings and trees um, in in 60 seconds kind of thing we don't see in Ireland Uh, Mm. so um, I think that the the danger of running on an anti-green manifesto is that as the evidence of the negatives around climate change build and build and build it would only take one really horrific event in Europe or even in Ireland um, to turn public opinion on the need to tackle climate change. And I, it's about, and I think Caroline van der Plaas, um, you know, walked that fine line last week uh, when she spoke in, in Athlone uh, by Zoom to the, the Farmers Alliance. The leader she, of the BBB. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, uh, she, uh, she said that... Um, uh, that it's about the pace of change, it's about how we adjust, it's about managed change, it's about funding, and that's the kind of language that the farm organisations use a lot. And while the farm organisations express extreme frustration with this government, 
at the same time they continue to work with them as opposed to setting up in opposition to them. And uh, that's also part of the dynamic because okay. we have about 100,000 farmers in the various farm organisations who interact with whoever is the government of the day rather than setting themselves up in opposition to. All right, Pat, I'm not sure that this conversation was inevitable a a month ago. I thought that was modest of you to say it. I don't believe in crystal balls uh, and I have a a sense that maybe it is uh, a sign of uh, the influence that the Farmers' Journal has on rural Ireland uh, when you wrote your article a month ago. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning uh, and we'll be watching that space as they say. That's Pat O'Toole, the political editor with the Irish Farmers' Journal. Now, this Friday morning, can I ask you what will you be doing tonight? Will you be sitting in front of the television watching The Late Late Show? Some of you will be, like me, scratching your head saying, what is The Late Late Show? Oh, hold on, let me think about that. I do remember that. That was on the telly years ago, wasn't it? Do people still watch it? Is it still on? Oh, right. Okay, I did see something about the presenter stepping down. Uh, but God, it's very old hat. No offence uh, to the presenter, no reflection on the presenter or the production team. I'm sure they all work very hard uh, and so on. But has it run its course? Why am I asking you that? Well, it's a question that was asked of the chairperson of RTE in the Oireachtas this week. Could I ask, just in relation to the, the late show, which is very um, important part of the RTE piece and I presume one of your top earners in relation to advertising revenue. Um, do you feel that perhaps it has run, run its course with, with the departure, the impending departure of, of Ryan Tuberty, who's done a really good job in my opinion, um, but do you think it's time maybe to consider moving on entirely from the day to show? Again, that's a decision for the executive board uh, in terms of how they see fit in terms of programmes that are going into the schedule. Yeah, do you, do you have any opinion on this yourself? Uh, like, uh, it do- doesn't really matter about my personal opinion. It's, uh, it's to do with, it's an editorial decision that the executive board will take. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a board, we don't get involved in that. You definitely. Do, 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 do you not feel that it's, that laissez-faire approach is um, somewhat, um, you know, should be of concern to some of us who feel that you know whether it's current affairs, whether it's programming, this you know it's, it's it's a convenient out just to say that we don't get involved because there is a lot of concern. Um, a lot of people have expressed concern to me uh, in relation to RT, particularly in the, the news and current affairs side of things, uh, and yet there seems to be no one accountable. We do have a programme subcommittee and this is the forum where we engage with those matters um, and our role is purely oversight. We don't get involved in editorial matters, but it's not a laissez-faire approach from the board. There is oversight. RTE's PJ Matthews and uh, the chairperson of RTE, Shuni Rahali, uh, were responding uh, to Fine Gael TD, Brendan Griffin at the Oireachtas Media Committee. They don't have opinions on the programmes he was asking about, uh, as you heard, but maybe you do. 0419832000 is our telephone number. If you want to share that opinion with us, text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Will I repeat that number? 
like an RTE programme? OK, 086 email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Thanks to Peter and Navin who says, Michael, overall RTE has run its course. Most of its programming is repeated. Certainly not worth their licence fee. Thank you, Peter. Uh, if anybody else wants to comment on this, uh, we won't repeat the number, not just yet. Uh, but thank you, Peter. Doreen says, uh, in, in relation to the farmers and the problems they face, she says, really? A dry February? Michael, it was, uh, Doreen. It was the driest February on record. She says, Michael, I think the farmers should be getting all of their water from all of the rain we get here. Uh, well, it was the wettest March on record. I think some farmers are uh, only going to start sowing potatoes because it's been so wet. Uh, but she says, when do they know that uh, there is one thing that they could do? Uh, among other things, uh, they could cut down the size of the national herd. There's more cattle than people in this country and it's never good, says Dorian. Thank you for that. Uh, another text uh, from Sean who says, don't worry, the Greens will be gone after the next election. They've destroyed the wonderful streets of Dublin with cycle lanes, resulting in car tailbacks spewing out more toxic fumes. Complete madness, says Sean. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch. Uh, I'm tempted to give you the telephone numbers uh, again. Uh, but I, I'm afraid of repeating things. All right, it's been a remarkable week, it has to be said, uh, in Belfast, uh, celebrating the 25th anniversary of uh, the Good Friday Agreement with uh, an international conference uh, which saw many of the architects of the Accord come to Queen's University in Belfast, many of them not with us uh, today. Uh, But there were some remarkable contributions over the course of the three-day conference. And this uh, is something that we're going to focus on on the programme today. We're going to reflect on some of the things uh, that were said uh, and bring you parts of those contributions that were heard in Queen's University this week. I do think the people that I was privileged to work with Bertie and Tony and their predecessors. I still remember Albert Reynolds when I asked him, I called him, I said, think I ought to give Adams a visa? He said, I do. I said, why? He said, blah, blah, blah. He gave me the reasons. And, uh, I said, I'll probably get the hell kicked out of me. He said, you will. (laughs) But you should do it. I was lucky that I had people to talk to from the beginning who talked straight and shot straight. What is the future about? The future is about now that I think the biggest roadblock to the, that Brexit posed for Northern Ireland's political and economic future has been dramatically mitigated is to figure out what the heck else is practically at issue here. Not rhetorically, not ideologically, practically at issue. What else needs to change to protect that day-to-day legitimate pursuit of making a living and deal with it. But this whole deal was never supposed to be an engine of obstruction. The agreement 
was never supposed to be used to make sure there could be no self-government, to make sure people should give up on it. And we know what the votes were in the last election. We can add them up. There are allocation of seats in the parliamentary body, and it's time to get the show on the road. Time to get the show on the road. Uh, that's uh, the restoration of uh, the political institutions in Northern Ireland, uh, which, of course, remain in limbo 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement was signed on the 10th of April. Into the run-up to that, there was that controversy about Jerry Adams travelling to the United States. Uh, that, by the way, was uh, the former president of uh, the United States, Bill Clinton, who was recalling uh, how... Uh, there was objection to it and should he or should he not? Uh, the reason Jerry Adams wasn't allowed uh, to go to the United States uh, was because of his links with the IRA. Uh, 25 years on, of course, uh, the war is over, the IRA is disbanded. Uh, but Jerry Adams' political objective remains the same, and that is uh, to see a united Ireland. Indeed, Jerry Adams told the conference this week that there will be a referendum, that that is inevitable, and that we have to start preparing for a united Ireland. So I, I think we're into a, a phase, given all that we've been through, of gentle persuasion that those of us who want to see that type of uh, vision becoming reality listening proactively, listening to those who don't, engaging, being flexible about how we proceed in terms of it. And I I would just appeal to my Northern Protestant brothers and sisters to look at their own history, particularly here in the county of Antrim and the county of Down, to the, the role that patriots, mostly Presbyterian, Pled, and then when they were chased out of the place, went on to play in the independence struggle in your country, in the USA, and went on to become presidents of, of that United States of America. So, so, I, so I think it's all there for us to discuss. And I, I think the, the most important thing is we, we can now peacefully disagree. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing. There's nothing wrong with somebody putting forward an opinion and somebody putting forward uh, another opinion away. Maybe 30 years ago, we were involved in private talks with people from mostly church-type people, mostly middle-class church church people. And the first discussion was very bruising, was was really difficult. What, what, What persuaded me that there was a difference coming about, now this is 30 years ago, was it wasn't a one-off. They come back, we went back. We continued. We didn't agree on everything. In fact, we didn't agree on a huge amount. But we agreed to keep listening to each other's opinions and trying to get some shape of it. So republicanism or a citizen-centered society or one in which everybody can be treated on the basis of equality I think is within our grasp. It will take time. You don't have to rush at it. Just go at it easy. Go at it uh, intelligently and go at it strategically. But listen as much as speaking. 
Fascinating stuff from Belfast over the course of the week and we hope to bring you some more of those contributions throughout the programme today. That there, of course, the former president of Sinn Féin, Gerry Adams. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Let's talk about the price of petrol and the price of diesel now and what it's going to be in the coming months. In June and October, there's going to be changes. Paddy Common, Head of Communications with AA Ireland, is with us. Good morning to you, Paddy. Thanks for coming in to us uh, this morning. Uh, we saw prices at over two euro a, a litre not so long ago. Uh, now you're paying what one fifty, one sixty a litre. Yeah, this time last year we would have been looking at pricing of over two euro per litre, and that was the time when you know, the government said, right, okay, we really have to take some measures to improve this because it is becoming a, a bit of a disaster. So, so those the there were there was the introduction of those duty cuts. Now, unfortunately, while prices are quite low and reasonably stable at the moment, obviously low is, is relative, we are seeing a scheduled reintroduction of those uh, duties again. So that will start on the 1st of June with $0.06 cents per litre on petrol and $0.05 cents per litre on diesel. Mm. September 1st, again, $0.07 cents on petrol, $0.05 cents on diesel. And then they'll be fully restored. So all those duties will be back up again by the 31st of October with 8 cents and 60, 6 cents for diesel. So 21 cents on petrol, 16 cents on diesel. So all things being equal, mm-hmm. even if the prices didn't yeah. move now, we'd be back up to sort of 180 for, or so for, for fuel. So right. um, so yeah, it doesn't look like by the end of October that things will be will be, will be cheap again. Mm. Yeah, is that the right thing to do? I mean, this is a carbon tax that we're talking about to save the planet. It, it is a carbon tax, but the government have been really raking it in over the last... 12 to 18 months especially on fuel there was a figure I'd heard at one point during the worst of that where they were taking in 500 million euro per month just on fuel and they, you know they really have been raking it in mm. so I think there is a, a difficulty here because you and I have spoken about this here before there are people who just don't have the alternative but to use their car and this is and it's hitting these people at a time when there are gas bills there are mm. electricity bills every bill they have is, mm. is crazy so, and every time those bills go up the gas electricity mm. the government takes in more in the same way that it takes in more every time the price uh, of fuel goes up absolutely and, and it, it's you know for the people who are living in Dublin who can jump on a Lewis Dart Dublin bike whatever that's something but if for people who are in rural areas and mm. don't have an option the, the threat potential and what we know is the scheduled increase of these mm. duties is just bad news Okay but this is a big stick isn't it uh, whether you're in rural Ireland or in Dublin or wherever uh, to go out and buy an electric car Well it, it's one it's one method uh, you know the the government current government really do seem to be intent on making sure that car use is limited mm. especially in urban areas uh, there is a push towards electric vehicles but you know electric vehicles are expensive even mm. you have to have the purchase price or access to the loan to get a purchase uh, price of these cars at the start now there are savings to be made from that but mostly mm. if you're charging at home again it will add quite a lump to your electricity bill i've seen my own jump quite a lot because you know, these cars have big enough batteries, you're using yep. them at home. And, mm. and if you're not smart about how you're charging them, you can be char- you're paying quite a lot mm. to charge these. People will save in the long run, but you have to have the money in the first place. Yeah. And that's not really true for everyone. I'm, I was talking to somebody recently uh, who had a long journey, I don't know, 300 mile type of journey and uh, had to charge. The battery wouldn't cover it. Uh, 
uh, and went to the only charger on the route available and there were two cars in front of her. Yeah, we are at that point where mm. now there aren't enough charging points for mm. the cars that are on sale because they, they are, the sales have increased a lot. Mm. But people also have to remember when you're on some of these public charging networks, especially on the motorways, you can be paying 72, 75 cents per yeah. kilowatt, mm. which is the equivalent per kilometre of petrol or diesel. So on those routes, you're not mm. saving any money. So what's the point in buying it? Well, look, I mean, yeah. it's it's obviously the tailpipe emissions. Mm. There's well, nothing hi- hybrid, though, uh, is obviously a much better option, isn't well, it? Hybrid's a solution uh, on the way to, uh, mm. to EV. But, but that's the point. We're not there. Well, we're not there, <laughs> we're not there not with the infrastructure. We don't have the charging points uh, and it's so expensive it's, anyway. It's not for everyone. Mm, there are yeah, people yeah, who can yeah. who can run EVs yeah. and who, their journey suits them. But for some people, I guess hybrid is a, a solution. But the thing about hybrid is they won't, they won't run without petrol. Mm. You can't drive any of those normal hybrid vehicles without putting petrol or diesel in it at some stage. Mm. So you are still using fuel, at least with an EV. There's no tailpipe emissions. Is that pressure on fuel prices that the war caused gone? Uh, or is there pretty, a chance? Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Right, I okay. mean, what what happened was that the obviously the markets got very, very unsettled with the outbreak. Um, there was supply issues initially. And what's happened since is the world has found other places to get their fuel from, mm. especially in Europe, where Europe was very dependent on Russian diesel in particular. We've started taking our fuel from the Middle East, from African countries, and from some cases, America. So the markets have balanced out. There was also a, win- a mild winter, and that accounted for some of the savings in terms of diesel, and that the right. diesel prices mm. aren't that mm-hmm. crazy at the moment. So why, we- why is diesel cheaper than petrol? I thought it gave off more emissions. Well, the refining of it as well costs mm. a little bit more, but it was just it's just supply and demand at the moment. The, right. the, the mild winter meant that there was a, a little bit of a surplus, and that's yeah. made the price it's kind a of a contradiction, lower. though, yeah, in this green message, isn't it? It is yeah. a bit, but there's you know what? There's no there's <clears throat> often no rhyme and reason in this <laughs> okay. uh, in this view. Yeah, well, uh, I leave it to you to say that. All <laughs> yeah. right, okay. Uh, while you're with us, uh, maybe we'll talk about speed mm. uh, and reducing speed because it's National Slowdown Day. Yeah, it is National Slowdown Day, and look, the two stories are linked. We are told. To, to slow down for mm. safety but we've shown and we've shown recently as well there's serious savings to be made if you slow down a little bit in your car we did a, a test recently where we drove actually up on Western Motors and drove up and down towards Dundalk and back at 100 mm. and 120 kilometres per hour in both a petro- or both an electric and a diesel car and if you're driving on the motorway at 100 mm. you will save 30% more both either electricity or diesel Rather than driving, it's the ideal speed. Isn't it, it is the ideal car? speed yeah, for yeah. you know physics mm. wise. But you, look, you won't be popular though. <laughs> no, well, look, the inside lane mm. trucks are limited yeah. to ninety, so stay in the inside lane. And you won't be annoying anyone else. But look, if there is a safety message there. Seventy percent of accidents, I think it is, take place on rural roads. Um, so it's it's those areas in particular where the accidents happen. So look, everyone, if they're just a little bit vigilant, and and you know, if this reminds people to take care in the roads, it's no bad thing. Road debts aren't great this year, so. We do need to see um, an improvement yeah. there. Mm, it's uh, dreadful to see uh, that going in uh, the wrong direction again. Paddy, look, thank you indeed uh, for coming into us. Hopefully people will just hear the message and think about it and think about uh, their own safety and the safety of others today. Paddy Cummins, Head of Communications with AA Ireland. As I say, thank you for coming into us today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. What we're witnessing in terms of the privatisation of the service and anybody who lives in a working class estate particularly will know this, Every day of the week, not once a week, but every day of the week, dirty, large diesel-run trucks run up and down estates because of competition. 
Either people are going to Thorntons or they're going to Panda or they're going to Citibin. There are a plethora of waste management companies, most of them registered offshore so that their profits are not up for scrutiny. We do have a measure of a lot of their profits and by God are their profits rising. I'll read, read out some of them later on, but their profits are rising astronomically. Even in this cost of living uh, crisis, they're gaining and people are losing out. So is it not time now, Taoiseach, or Tánis, that this state called for the renationalisation, the remunicipalisation of the waste management services throughout the country? It's been a disaster for the environment, for workers, for ordinary people who have to pay the charges, and it's time to reverse that and do the right thing for all of the above mentioned. That's People Before Profit TD, Breed Smith speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Let's talk uh, about uh, the collection of rubbish with Brendan O'Brien, who's uh, the sector organiser with SIP2. Good morning to you, Brendan, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I want to talk uh, about uh, some of uh, the bin companies uh, now moving to charge for lifting compost bins, but before we do that, maybe we can take up on the point that Breed Smith raised in the Doll yesterday about all of these companies sending their big lorries up and down the same streets across the country uh, because there's been a report from the Institute of Public Administration uh, which has been looking at what we do here and what they do elsewhere. It's very different in Europe apparently. Yeah, uh, good morning Michael. Yeah, and and, and uh, what, what Breed uh, described there is, is exactly the situation we have uh, in Ireland today. Um, what we have in Ireland uh, at the moment is not a normal situation in comparison to uh, uh, you know our, our colleagues in Europe and, and, and likes uh, uh, countries. Uh, what we have in Ireland um, is a is a system which is called side by side tendering. And uh, as Brad said there in the piece, you have multiple private contractors uh, operating and competing on the same routes. Uh, in Europe uh, and in the comparison countries that the uh, the IPA uh, uh, report uh, studied showed that that's not the way it operates uh, as best practice in Europe. You have a, a single uh, operator uh, who tenders for the market and uh, more often than not, uh, that's a publicly owned company um, run by the state um, and that delivers uh, better uh, quality of service to the public, uh, usually cheaper quali- uh, services to the public, uh, better conditions for the worker and, and better for the environment. So, how, how is that? How, how does it result in a, a cheaper service? Surely competition would uh, dictate prices. Uh, and if you're competing with somebody else, you try to charge less. Yeah, well, that, that's the arguments that was put forward by the government at the time. And, and uh, when the EU uh, issued the Waste Framework Directive, uh, um, that's what the intention was. It was supposed to uh, modernise the waste uh, collection service to promote recycling, uh, reduce wastage. And, and that was the reason that was given by uh, the, the then government and the local authorities. as They were saying that the only way that that can be achieved is through privatisation of the service. And of course, as we've seen over the intervening decades, uh, that has been a disaster. We, we now have a situation where 20% of the, the Irish uh, population don't have a, a waste mm. collection service. We have rampant uh, it, uh, illegal dumping uh, in its place. And, and and we we can see the the, the failure of of that policy of of, of handing the um, the waste mm. services over to an unregulated market because one of the other things that was supposed to have been done was the government was supposed to appoint a regulator to oversee uh, the industry that hasn't happened to date so essentially we 
have the Wild mm. West okay. uh, in, in the waste industry. But I still don't um, understand how the Wild West is charging more. I, I mean, if you well, take if you take my street, for example, uh, or, or any street, uh, and if you've got two or three different bin companies uh, who can collect your bins, you take a look at them and see which is the cheapest. But you're telling me that in Europe, I'd only have one company. I wouldn't have any choice. Uh, and I'd have to go with them if I wanted my bins to be collected. How is it cheaper? Yeah, well, well, the, the proof is in the report, Michael. And, yeah. and if you if you look at the the system, because this the the, the, the the countries are you know like Stockholm and and uh, Oslo and so on, you know, comparable countries uh, yeah. to, uh, and, and cities to ours. Um, they looked at this uh, and they they saw that the, the private market um, uh, couldn't deliver what was required on, on, in the public interest, um, and that's why they moved to bring about uh, uh, tendering for the market. Uh, so one company gets gets the the, the particular uh, area or routes, and they have to uh, account for for you know policies in terms of um, you know uh, reducing waste and mm. uh, you know, oh, and maybe so it's on. in how they accept the tender that the best value for a customer is yeah, uh, the and, dictation. And it's up for renewal. Yeah. It's up for renewal mm-hmm. every few okay. years. So 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 they have to, to to meet the standards that are set and the and the, and the requirements to reduce waste okay. and, and, and improve the, the quality of the environment. And, and you mentioned the conditions of the workers. Uh, I've often mm-hmm. thought and I've said it many times as well that it's not a job that I envy. Any time I see uh, the bin lorry. Uh, park, uh, I see fellas running for bins and running back with the bins and they seem to spend their whole day running. It's a very, very hard work. Yeah, and it is a tough job and, and, and we, and, and uh, you know, and it, it's, um, and it takes a lot of dedication to, to, to do that job day in, day out. And, and uh, one of the experiences, and, and again, the report that was commissioned by the, the Institute of Public Administration illustrated the fact that, that you can actually have a win-win situation, a win for the public in terms of a better quality service, um, uh, d- uh, delivering uh, cheaper services, and also better uh, standards of employment for the workers. And, and so the proof is there in that report for people to look at, and it's, it's, it's there people can, can, can look at it online and see, see the proof for themselves. But uh, the difficulty then we have is say, well, if that's the case, uh, why are we? Uh, why do we have such um, uh, inertia on the part of the government, uh, where it's, it's quite clear we have a rampant uh, illegal waste uh, problem uh, across the country? Um, um, there are solutions there that, that address this issue, um, but the, the government seems to be more beholden uh, to the, the waste operators, the private waste operators, and, and servicing their needs, which is generating profits. Uh, rather than the public interest uh, in terms of reducing mm-hmm. costs to the to the public and improving the service, and that's that's what we're calling for. We're due to to meet with the Oireachtas Committee uh, next month, and we'll be putting it to uh, uh, the, all of the political parties, both government and opposition, that it's time for them to step up to the plate now and and address this problem. We've been calling for this to be done for years. Um, and, and we'll be now calling upon the government parties and the opposition parties to support us uh, to uh, get the state to intervene in relation to this problem and uh, and re-enter mm. the market um, and, and re-enter the waste industry uh, to, to actually bring us about the service that we all want and, and which we see uh, delivered across uh, to our citizens across Europe and we seem to be the exception to that. Okay, Brendan, bear with me for a moment because as I said, I do want to ask you about uh, how some of the companies, no doubt they'll all follow suit, uh, but how some of uh, the companies are charging to lift domestic bins. Uh, But before I ask you about that, uh, maybe we can hear some of uh, the Thornish's response to Breed Smith in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Here's Micheál Martin. As you know, 
back in mid-2017, the then government decided to phase out flat rate fees for household waste um, collection. Uh, collection companies are required to charge fees which incentivize households to minimize waste and to segregate uh, their recyclable and organic waste from residual waste. Uh, and in, in the interest of encouraging further waste prevention and greater recycling, flat rate fees for curbside household waste collection were phased out again uh, over, over that period. Right, that's Michal Martin. Brendan, where is the incentive to segregate your organic waste if they're going to charge you after you go? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com to the bother of doing that to lift it. Yeah, and, and I think like there's a lot of contradictions in what the promise is saying there. You know, um, he, he's actually, he's actually setting out an argument to increase costs because as as we see in the in the the recent announcement there by, by that particular uh, waste uh, company uh, to now increase the charges on on uh, uh, the, uh, green waste, if you like, uh, bio, uh, bio waste. Um, the opposite is actually happening. Um, we're, we're now paying more for that, and, and one of the things that the uh, like the argument about reducing flat fees, uh, you know, is, is nonsensical because what, what we what we're actually doing now is we're paying by weight. Uh, so all of us, and myself included, uh, we see our bills going up uh, year on year uh, because the rate uh, per per kilo or per per ton uh, mm. goes up uh, every year. So there's no incentive because. Um, you know, uh, how do you reduce the amount of food that you eat? <laughs> you know, and, and there go the amount of but it's oil, huge, uh, waste it's, that you it's, throw it's usually valuable. Uh, I, I compost myself, uh, and I hardly ever put out uh, the mm. bins. Maybe two or three times a year we put out the bins because we compost mm. everything and anything that we can. And as a result of that, we don't buy compost for the garden because it turns into compost. Uh, 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 and this is a product that we're giving to the bin companies uh, that can be sold on or whatever they do with it. Yeah, and and again, again, that's one of the things we've we've called for the local authorities to do to actually lead on on uh, environmental you know initiatives uh, like that. You know, and that's one of the reasons we're saying the local authorities need to get back into the market because that's one of the things they could be doing uh, is in terms of gathering that uh, and recycling and so on. 
which they're not doing. And, and uh, we're, we're kind of trapped in a system uh, whereby all we're doing is we're, we're filling up bins, we're paying by uh, the weight. Uh, and and as, as Brian Smith said earlier on in their piece, uh, th- those monies that are generated that are going into uh, shareholder accounts uh, elsewhere rather than uh, going back into the industry to actually help run initiatives like, like you're describing, which I'd actually agree with. All right. Uh, she was talking about uh, a company that was bought for 1.4 billion euro uh, by an Australian infrastructure fund and then the profits uh, that comes from that company now will go into Australian infrastructure. Uh, would you have a problem with that? Well, look, I, 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 our concerns in relation to, to this are, 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 are quite simple. One is the state has uh, neglected its responsibility to the citizens by exiting the market and leaving it open to an unregulated, uh, entirely privatised market. And look, you, you don't need me or uh, to, to prove the case. We, we all see this in terms of the cost we're paying every week uh, to, to waste collection companies uh, and also the, the cost to the state in terms of having to clean up illegal dumping uh, as a consequence of the fact that, that uh, 20% of, of the citizens no longer have a waste collection service. So um, that's, the, that's the reality of where we are. And what we need now is, is the government to, to recognise that they have made mistakes. Uh, it has cost the state hugely. It is costing the citizens. And, and we're now at the time that that has to change. And, and that requires a number of things. Uh, the state to give a commitment that they will intervene uh, and re-enter the waste collection market as a player. Um, and that can be easily done. Um, publicly owned and, and, and accountable companies uh, can be established uh, to deliver the type of waste uh, and environmental policies that we now require, uh, rather than because the, the market has failed. And, and that's what's required. And that can be done uh, through legislation, uh, uh, directing local authorities to re-enter uh, the waste collection business. Okay. That's, that's what we're, That's what. That's the solution to the problem. All right. And as you say, SIPTA will be meeting with members of uh, the Oireachtas to make those arguments. Thank you for making them with us on the programme uh, this morning and for joining us on the show today. For that matter, Brendan O'Brien, sector organiser with SIPTA. Now, a uh, uh, text that comes to us uh, from a, a Navin listener uh, may uh, be something that you're interested in. Uh, I'm not sure how much it cost, uh, but it's uh, this Elon Musk rocket. Um, I, I, I think, says the Navin listener, I think the multi-billionaires who are spending millions on trying to send rockets to other planets, when there is so much damage to planet Earth, millions of people with no food and so on, they should leave other planets alone as the likes of them have done enough damage to this one. What hypocrisy. Thank you indeed, Navin listener. The one thing, I mean, you make a very valid point, I think, but the one thing that struck me was how much did that cost that failed launch, uh, which is said to be a success, how much did it cost? When you talk about uh, people with no food and children starving in the world, you look at what's happening in the Horn of Africa and some of the other disasters that are taking place. Uh, there must have been enough money spent on that thing to feed all of the people on this planet. It, it, it really is an incredible thing. I, 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 I don't know much about it, but... I think, like the Navin listener, I was looking at it, shaking my head, and I'm delighted that you got in touch with us today to make that point. Let me uh, remind you of our, our contact numbers if you want to get in touch. You can phone us on 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. 
As I said earlier on, we're going to bring you uh, some of uh, the highlights, if you like, of uh, the contributions made uh, to uh, that conference in Queen's University in Belfast, commemorating the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. This next speaker should be familiar to you, uh, the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson. You don't easily uh, make and sustain peace if only we understood how precious the Good Friday Belfast Agreement is, and that it has lasted, has been emphasised, that there is um, a process here for the people of Northern Ireland which is beyond price. It's invaluable. It's rare. It's very rare at the international level, as I know from my work as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and now as Chair of the Elders, where we're still trying to address some conflicts. So, uh, you know, it's wonderful to be here. I hope that this commemoration that has been so well planned by Queen's University, and I pay great tribute to the planning of it, will help encourage valuing and now implementing fully this very special Good Friday Belfast Agreement. That's the great hope many people have. Mary Robinson there, somebody else uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, former Taoiseach Bertie Hearn. Well, I suppose the troubles had gone on so long, and um, all of us, Albert Reynolds before me, John Major, you know, it, it was just a, an issue you felt you, you had to try. And, of course, you're meeting all the, all the party leaders and, you, you know, meeting John and meeting Jerry and uh, me, me, meeting um, all of the political leaders. And um, I was lucky enough to meet you, um, President, when you came over in 95. I was leader of the opposition, so uh, I, I, I was to get 10 minutes with you up in the... Um, in the ambassador's uh, residence in Phoenix Park, and you gave me an hour. Uh, you obviously had nothing to do that day, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 but, uh, and then I, I, I had gotten to know Tony well, and we, we had met in Dublin. We, we'd met in the Gresham Hotel was the first time I'd met Tony, and, and we'd met in, 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 um, in, in both parliaments. Uh, so I, I felt, you know, listen, this was worth it. And Tony had made it very clear he was going to give this a real crack. His first speech, even though he, you know, was huge celebrations coming in as the Labour Prime Minister, you know, huge crowds, and the first thing he did was come to Northern Ireland, so I mean, he couldn't be, show more serious intent than, than that. He went to the Balmoral Agricultural Show, and um, my, my job... Uh, he, he has a big farm in Chequers as well. <laughs> but... But we, 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 we got working on it, and I think you know, we went back and met you, Jerry. The thing was to get the ceasefire back on track and, and, and to get, get moving. So I think from then on, you know, from that summer of 97, all the way up to Good Friday, like it, it seemed like every day, but it was certainly every week. Uh, I hold a record which will never be beaten of the Irish Prime Minister, Irish T-shirt that was in uh, number 10 more than anywhere else, I can tell you that. I, I was there every week, and the food was always good, unlike Castle Buildings. And uh, so, so I think that's how it got going. So the relationship was good, and and of course, President, whenever, whenever, ever we needed you, sometimes it said you stayed up all night in the last few days. But the reality was, you were, 
you were there all the time for us and I think that's how the relationship developed. A fascinating insight into how those relationships improved. It wasn't always like that, as you know, but how familiar they all became. Tony, Bill, Jerry, John, David and Bertie. Here's another contribution, somebody who you may not be as familiar with, uh, Joseph Kennedy III, uh, but uh, a great speaker, Joe Kennedy, uh, didn't let people down in Queens this week. If there's a place on this planet that is resilient that is capable, that is clear-eyed and scrappy enough to take on this challenge, it is the shores we stand on today. Because you all aren't afraid of the hard stuff. You have wrestled through hundreds of years of division, tribe and tradition, country and creed, pain, hurt, and loss. And you are still here. You are building a Northern Ireland where the troubles of the past give way to the triumphs of tomorrow. Where children can read about history and not relive it. Children like Jack McBride from Donegal, who I met yesterday, right out back from this hall. He shared with me a piece that he wrote entitled GFA Poem. It concludes, but some still argue till this day, if the agreement's truly sound, is it the beginning of a new era or just a band-aid that's bound? Regardless of the criticisms, we can all agree that the Good Friday Agreement was a step towards harmony. So let's raise a pint of Guinness to the Irish and the Brits who put aside their differences for a future that uplifts. Here's to the future that you have earned, a future that Jack and every child like him deserves. I am so excited and grateful to be along with you in this journey, and I cannot wait to see where we will go. Indeed. Fabulous. That's uh, Joe Kennedy uh, and well put. Jack. Uh, some comments now. Tom and Navin says, Michael, it seems strange that yesterday I was pointing out the contrast in abortion and IVF treatment. Then today, because a rich guy wants to better humanity into the next few hundred years or so, you put him down and then compare his activities to hunger in the world. You really do pick and choose. Governments should fix world hunger, says Tom and Navin. Thank you for that, Tom. Uh, some WhatsApp messages about Elon Musk's rock uh, as well. Uh, somebody saying, yes, Michael, I'm blue in the face listening to them tell us that climate change is so important and we're burning too much fuel and destroying the planet. But that idiot can build rockets and burn a year's fuel in five minutes. Apart from the damage those rockets do to the planet, as you said, how many people could have been fed with all of the money that has been spent on that. Thank you uh, for your WhatsApp. Uh, another WhatsApp, this one's from Rose, who says, Michael, I, I fully agree with the Navin listeners. So much money going up in smoke. And that is the second one to explode and all of the people starving in the world. Just leave the planet alone uh, other planets alone uh, and work on the one we have at the planet Earth says Rose thank you indeed Rose uh, for getting in touch we'll be going back to Queen's University again later in the
programme. But if you want to comment, 0419832000 uh, on uh, the dog and bone, text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about dogs, tails and wagging or who works for who or who is in charge as the case may be because the government has accepted a report from Maura Quinn into the abandoned secondment of Dr Tony Hoolan to a position in Trinity College in Dublin. Mr Watt engaged in a solo run when Dr Tony Hoolan indicated he was considering stepping down as Chief Medical Officer and moving to academia. He committed £20 million of public money to this process without any government approvals or oversight. He failed to provide any rationale for the extent of the £20 million funding. He completely bypassed the Health Research Board and its rigorous and transparent protocols surrounding applications for funding in assigning this money. He failed to inform the Minister for Health about this process. He misrepresented the fact that he didn't inform the Secretary-General of the Department of Taoiseach of the detail of this proposal. He misrepresented the fact that your own Chief of Staff had been given any detail about this process. This is quite the litany, Tónishta. Of course, he now tells us he rejects the finding of the government-approved report into this entire debacle. That's the leader of uh, the Social Democrats, Holly Kearns, uh, speaking in Zal yesterday, highlighting how, on one hand, the government may have accepted uh, the Quinn report, but the most senior civil servant in uh, the Department of Health, Robert Watt, has rejected the report and its criticisms of himself. It's not enough to say you accept the report when Mr Watt, its central character, is loudly intimating he thinks it's a load of rubbish. So, Tony, I have three questions. Is it appropriate for Mr Watt to reject the findings of this report? How can Mr Watt's position be tenable? And do you or the government intend to take any action uh, to make Mr. Watt accountable. I think you could argue that the Tonish de Michal Martin didn't address those questions in the Dáil yesterday specifically, but he did say... The government in its entirety accepts without reservation uh, the recommendations um, of Maura Quinn. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, who is also a columnist, as I'm sure you know, for the Meath Chronicle, joins us now. Gavin, good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, this is becoming more and more controversial as uh, the story rumbles on, isn't it? Yeah, and in a way, actually, the the sort of controversy had had gone away to a point because even though this report had been sitting on Stephen Donnelly's desk for for quite a few months, that basically a lot of the, the heat had gone out of it, and since Tony Houlihan had left the public service, there might have been some sense that all of this was now kind of over, and that the controversy that was raised the first time around meant that nobody would be trying to engineer a comment like this for any time in the future. But it's all been reignited by the release of the report, and certainly the, the attitude that's been taken by Robert Watt, who, you know, let's be honest, has, has a reputation for being an uncompromising and sometimes a, a pretty pugnacious civil servant, and has certainly come to the fore again. And um, what you heard that the one line from um, Leo Martin there, and, and maybe this is worth clarifying, because this, this is where some things have sort of gotten confused, and this is where the difficulty with the Robert Watt story lies, is that the government says that it recommends or accepts completely the recommendations of uh, Maura Quinn's report. She was the external um, independent governance expert who was asked to review the whole circumstances of all of this and to, to come up with a new formula for what might be done in future. 
they accept the recommendations, but there is still disagreement within government as to accepting her findings as regards what actually happened. And this kind of gets to the whole, mm. the, the nub of the procedure, because she says that existing protocols for how the Commons were supposed to be arranged and how funding for all of this would be sanctioned and who was supposed to have oversight and certain rules and circulars that are supposed to be observed. She says that some of those rules were simply just dispensed with or not observed in the course of doing all of this. And, and that is the basis upon which she says, well, these are the rules that should be followed in the future. The difficulty for Robert Watt and then for everyone else around him is that he says, fair enough, you can accept those recommendations and we can decide that this is the means by which we do it in the future. But he doesn't accept that he did anything wrong in the handling of all of this in the first place, which means you kind of have this, this curious situation where the government has accepted the findings which are predicated on failings in this instance. But Robert Watt, to this day and to this moment, still doesn't accept that anything was done out of ordinary or that anything was done uh, other than uh, to the highest appropriate standards. So the government saying, right, this was botched and second, uh, and we need to review it and move on. And Robert Watt saying, well, you can move on all you like, but I did nothing wrong in this instance. And that's that's a very difficult thing for ministers to square because they're trying to stand over best practice while the guy who was ultimately responsible for all of this doesn't accept that he did anything wrong at all. And he made those points to members of the Finance Committee. How did he end up in front of the Finance Committee? Um, well, first of all, that there was a bit of reluctance on his part to go before the Finance Committee because, uh, and although this might sound like it's kind of splitting hairs for a lot of listeners, uh, Robert Watt being the Secretary General of the Department of Health means that ordinarily he would only be accountable to the Oireachtas Committee on Health. But there isn't really a case, other than with the Public Accounts Committee maybe, of Secretaries General being called in front of committees that are sort of marking the work of other departments. The reason why it ended up falling into the basket of the Finance Committee is because the Finance Committee is also responsible for public expenditure, and public expenditure itself is responsible for the running of the public service. So it sort of fell into their basket that way. Uh, but Robert Watt had been very reluctant to go before that committee because he said, listen, I answer to the Health Committee, not to you guys, so you can go and sniff somewhere else, thanks for very much. And uh, what ended up happening was that the uh, Finance Committee went and got itself the powers of compelability, and only when it threatened to use those legal powers to force Robert Watt to appear did he then voluntarily decide to show up anyway. Now, it should be said, for his part, that he has gone to the Health Committee about all of this before to answer questions around um, how this come-up was going to work and the funding uh, attached to the, the whole position and how it was going to come from the Health Research Board. But obviously the, the Health Committee doesn't get into this whole realm because the Health Committee isn't responsible for appointments in the public service. So that's how, uh, how it ended up here. But Robert Watt was very keen to stress that this was his fourth or fifth time before an Oireachtas committee to deal with all of this. So as far as he was concerned, he was only going over old ground that he had nothing further to add beyond the clean bill of health that he's given himself in the past. But of course, all of that has changed, put in slightly different context by the fact that we only saw this report from Oroquin earlier this week. And this was the first opportunity that anyone had to question him about his specific findings, albeit as unrepentant as Robert Watt was on the day. All right. Uh, so uh, there's no great dispute, uh, I, I take it from what you're saying, between government and Robert Watt, uh, the Secretary General in the Department of Health. No, well, what you did hear yesterday from Eho Martin was was something of a qualified defence. But he basically, uh, you, you rightly said when you played the clip from Holly Cairns, where she was asking, you know, how is his position tenable, or how is it possible that the government can accept the findings when Robert Watt himself doesn't? Um, and what we heard from from Eho Martin was, well, you know, back when I was Taoiseach and I was Taoiseach for the first six months of the COVID pandemic, and Robert Watt wasn't there because there was no Secretary General in the Department of Health. And actually, I think it's a very good thing that Robert Watt is there because he brought some, some stability to the poll. And, and that might be true because it, it might well be the fact that having Robert Watt in situ uh, was better for the government's response than having the Department of Health 
run by nobody at all, where there was no um, Secretary General in charge for the first six months of, of Micheál Martin and Stephen Donnelly's tenure. Um, that has to be said, it's probably a pretty low bar. Like, the idea of having Robert Walsh being better than having nobody. Like, the Taoiseach is literally saying it's better to have him than nobody at all, which, which is not a great um, vote of endorsement. Um, but as, as the highest the, paid public servant in history. Yes, yeah, so well, somebody who's curr- <laughs> currently on a salary, I think, of 297000 and okay. the next time that there's an increase under the public sector pay deals mm. will be clearing 300000 which means, as you say, yes, he is... Uh, the highest highest paid person ever on the public payroll, with the exception of um, the president, who I think has been entitled mm. to a salary above three hundred thousand, but hasn't been drawing it down for well okay. over a decade. But be- better um, than nobody. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he, he is better than having nobody yeah. at all. Mm. But yeah. yes, Michal mm. Martin did not say uh, that he accepts it, that he's totally comfortable with Robert Watts' uh, stance over all of this, or that he's comfortable with Robert Watts continuing to believe that nothing was done uh, below board um, as regards the whole settlement of Tony Hoolan, which in itself is remarkable because the report is, it, it, makes, it makes it very clear not to point the finger at individuals, uh, but it does, in the passive voice, say that a lot of protocols were breached. So, for example, that when this settlement was being arranged, that Robert Watts um, arranged so that there would be two million of public funding going towards Tony Hoolan's budget, and that Tony Hoolan would therefore kind of have this, this pool of funds to be able to draw from to fund his own research in this new job at Trinity College Dublin. And that was a unilateral decision which mm. apparently was taken by Robert Watts. Other people thought that it already had the sign-off of senior cabinet ministers, including um, Michal Martin, including Stephen Donnelly, when in fact they all seemed to think that this was all being handled by somebody else and no one had actually signed off on it. And the idea that somebody unelected would have the personal authority to decide, right, I'm going to take 20 million out of this fund and put it over there with no political or governmental oversight at all. You know, Robert Watt says that it's, it's small change in the grand context of things. And maybe it is, but the principle stands, I think, that a lot of people wouldn't be happy that a civil servant could just unilaterally decide and I, I take it that unhappiness is uh, part of the reason that this will go on. It'll rumble on for some time to come. It follows on from uh, the report uh, that uh, was published by Maura Quinn uh, into the government. Uh, I want to talk to you about abortion, though, and uh, another report uh, into the existing legislation uh, yeah. that the minister has uh, from Marie O'Shea. Uh, and uh, before. Uh, we talk about that. Maybe we can hear what the minister said in the Dáil yesterday when he was asked by Gino Kenny when that report will actually be published. I am kind of prohibited from giving you an exact date. Suffice to say, very shortly. Uh, is uh, is uh, you can read into that what you want. <laughs> you can read into that what you want very, very shortly. And look, I, I'll wait in terms of operational recommendations and legislative recommendations. Let's just wait till we have the report and we can get into that. What, what I would say, though, Deputy, is regardless of the report, and it is a good report, um, the, the core focus for me and the HSC at the moment in terms of provision of services is... Uh, increasing the number of maternity hospitals providing services. We have 19 maternity hospitals. 11 are currently providing services. That's completely, totally unacceptable. Totally and utterly unacceptable. So I'm working very closely with the HSC right now to move from 11 to 17 of the 19 this year. And then early next year, the plan is that we'll move from 17 to 19. At the same time, there are um, a little over 400 GPs in the country providing services. It's gone up a lot. It's gone up by a half uh, in, in, in recent times. 
but we want to make sure that there's uh, there's as much access as possible as well. So regardless of, of anything in the report, that's where a lot of my focus is this year. That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with the Mead Chronicle, is still with us. Gavin, it's clear that the Minister wants uh, abortion to be more accessible to people. Um, whether you can actually say that he's personally endorsing it, I don't know. Certainly the fact that he says it's a very good report might be a hint that he is in favour of, of its recommendations. But this is something upon which the government is going to ha- have to tread very carefully because um, one of the major findings of this report has been reported by, by many of my media colleagues in their various outlets this morning is that the current um, three-day or 72-hour waiting period, uh, as some people might refer to it, it's almost like a cooling-off period where if you are within your first 12 weeks of pregnancy, that you can go to the GP, tell them that you want to access medications when the pregnancy, and then go back in 72 hours to retrieve it. The report is recommending that that not be binding on all people, that if you want to opt into a three-day waiting period in case you're not totally uh, committed to, to going ahead with your decision, you can opt into it, but it's saying that it shouldn't be binding on anyone, that there's, mm. there's reasons of inconvenience why it might not be appropriate to require somebody to go to a GP twice if this is what they want to do. Now, that's an arguable case, and mm. it's something which will be and referred that, to the office. Yeah, that needs to be decided, but I think it's clear the Minister wants uh, abortion services in all maternity hospitals, and he wants more GPs uh, working with the service. Yeah, I'll come back to the maternity hospital thing mm. in one in, in one minute because there's actually kind of an interesting subplot to that which, which might be worth drawing um, listeners' attention to. Just very quickly on, on the other front about getting rid of the 72-hour waiting period, people might remember that before the referendum was held in May of 2018 to uh, repeal the Eighth Amendment and to allow for a more permissive abortion system, all of these proposals had been worked through an Oireachtas committee and the idea was that people wouldn't be voting blind, that they would be voting knowing that this was the sort of law that was going to kick in. And you might remember that there were some members of cabinet, like, for example, Simon Coveney, who were uneasy about the idea of allowing a more permissive abortion regime and were slightly mollified by the idea that if if you were looking to terminate within the first 12 weeks, that this system would exist. And and many people may have voted yes to repealing on on the basis that that was the sort of safeguard that may be in place. So the government will have to tread very carefully on that front when it does come before. Um, on the big question of the maternity hospitals, the interesting subplot there is that you might remember, and, and this was a row which was brought up by the whole argument about the ownership of the new National Maternity Hospital and the governance and the religious ethos that may or may not prevail within it, um, that many of the 19 maternity hospitals are not directly run by the HSE. They are voluntary hospitals which are run by outside bodies which technically are under the ambit of religious groups or charities or groups that may not have the same ethos as the HSE. So if it is the case that Stephen Donnelly is able to convince all of those hospitals, including those which still have some religious ownership or oversight, if he can convince all of them that termination services should be available in them, then it's obviously a pretty reliable indication that the future National Maternity Hospital will have no issues at all. If it is still the case in 12 months' time that some of those hospitals are rebuffing the minister because they want to practice their own ethos rather than that of the state, then it will be an interesting little bellwether as to whether the state will actually be able to guarantee all clinical procedures being on the new hospital at Vincent. So it might well be a very good weather vein as to 
what exactly is coming down the line in a few years' time. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment uh, with uh, that weather vein. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme as always. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News, a columnist too with the Mead Chronicle. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now we'll hear more from Belfast and Queen's University and some of uh, the contributions made uh, this week. This time, though, from current day politicians. We'll begin with Tanisha and Minister for Foreign Affairs, Michal Martin. Northern Ireland is a place transformed since 1998, but there is much work to do. As an Irish government, we will play our part. Chris and Prime Minister Sunak have shown that the British government will play its part. I know that our international supporters, who contributed so much to making peace possible, will stay the course. As we heard with such passion last week from President Biden, the United States remains the steadfast ally of all in Northern Ireland who seek to secure peace and prosperity. And our European Union colleagues, delighted that Maris Sefcic is with us this morning, they're continuing to support our collective endeavours. But the essential next step is for the politicians of Northern Ireland to assume their responsibilities, fill the roles and institutions created by the Good Friday Agreement, all of them, and get to work to secure the futures of the young people of Northern Ireland and the generations to follow. Let us recapture and renew that generous spirit of the agreement. Let's make the effort again to see this place and see what has happened through the eyes of those we don't agree with. When we do, I am certain that we will recognize the potential of the opportunity before us, the potential of a decade of investment and renewal, the potential of our young people when they are given an education and the chance to thrive, potential that we dare not squander. Tanishta Michal Martin from the Irish government to the British government and the Northern Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris. I believe that successfully achieving local governments in this place has always depended on the consensus that I talked about earlier. And certainly, if there was voices from London or Dublin trying to impose something, it would certainly fail. But the UK government will continue to listen intently to the conversation on how we best achieve the effective and enduring operation of the institutions, because we too want to see the institutions working well for the whole of Northern Ireland. Their success is Northern Ireland's success. And Northern Ireland's success is the Union's success. Distinguished guests, Northern Ireland has made remarkable progress in the 25 years since the agreement's signing. If these 25 years have been about peace, then the next 25 must be about delivering a more prosperous, more reconciled future for everyone in Northern Ireland. We must look forward to what is possible, just as we must reflect and remind and educate ourselves about exactly what is at stake. The Government of the United Kingdom stands ready to support Northern Ireland to fully deliver on the ambition of the agreement. There's an awful lot of agreement, if not consensus. From the Northern Secretary, though, we go to the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. We won't build that better future overnight. And it won't always be easy. But every time I visit Northern Ireland, I feel more optimistic and hopeful. Because to paraphrase the late David Trimble, there may be hills ahead of us, but there are mountains behind. 
And I want to close by reflecting on an extraordinary story. Just weeks before the agreement, two lifelong friends, Damien Trainer and Philip Allen, were murdered at Points Pass. One was a Protestant, the other Catholic. Now, the people who murdered them may have hoped to sow chaos and division and derail the peace talks. They failed because the story of this remarkable friendship inspired one of the most decisive breakthroughs of the whole peace process. The agreement to share power between equal first and deputy first ministers in a co-premiership with one from each community. As Mark Durkin, the SDLP's lead negotiator, said at the time, the stories of Philip and Damien's special friendship could be a parable for the sort of society that we might create if we could reach agreement. And he was right. That is the promise of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And together we can and we must fulfil it. So from the British PM to the Irish Prime Minister, Taoiseach Leo Vratker. It's interesting to know that increasingly we see people from all parts of the world choosing to live here in Northern Ireland. The last census tells us that 124,000 people now living in the north were not born in either Ireland or Britain. That's extraordinary and it's a positive and interesting thing in my view. It's also a testament how far we've come that so many people from other parts of Europe and indeed from beyond Europe have chosen to make Northern Ireland their home. But continued prosperity requires a functioning government and public services need to be reformed improved and invested in. And that's why I believe the people of Northern Ireland deserve a functioning Executive Assembly and North-South Ministerial Council. And we'll work... And so the challenges of today require Northern Ireland's leaders to make the decisions that affect the communities on the ground. In conclusion, I believe that the Good Friday Agreement, above all, was about defying historical expectations. And we need that kind of leadership still. Speaking after the agreement was concluded, John Hume said, and I quote, Unionists and nationalists have at last taken the future in their hands. They've seized control of their history rather than letting history hold them in thrall. It's incumbent on Northern Ireland's political leaders today to take the initiative, to see past the shadow of the mountain behind, to seize control of their history, to seize control of their, of their destiny, and to lead people into a better future. And we, as co-guarantors of the agreement, will be here to help every step of the way. Taoiseach Leo Bradker, Maggie McGuire Research Today, Chris Murray was in the control tower, I'm Michael Godwilling, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.